Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, this community, this time to dive into your word. And we pray, Lord, that you as the word made flesh would be present to us through the words of sacred scripture, that you would speak to each one of us into the deepest recesses of our hearts, the words that you have set forth before we even knew we would be here tonight that you want to speak into each one of our lives. And so we pray, Lord, we would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for us, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to guide us, to give us the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that we can properly understand your words and how they have implications for our faith. And we pray, Lord, tonight that you would remove any distractions or worries from us, any presence or attachments to the evil one, that we would cast those things out, bind and renounce them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you and your Holy Spirit, Lord, can reign in this place. And so we pray, Lord, for that openness, for your spirit to move, and for us to be attentive and ready to receive it. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. We are in John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. John 6, verses 51 through 58. Welcome, welcome. So this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Feast of Corpus Christi. The feast, uh, or it's technically called the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ. So as I mentioned last week, two weeks after Pentecost every year, that Sunday is always Corpus Christi Sunday. And so we are always remembering, celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, that it's not a symbol, it's not a representation, it is actually him, and we get to receive him every single time we go to receive him at Mass in the Eucharist. So this Sunday is especially dedicated to that, and the readings are all Eucharistic themes. So this gospel passage, it comes from John 6, in a big section of John 6, which is called the Bread of Life Discourse. So if ever anyone has a question about, oh, you Catholics, why do you have the Eucharist? Why do you believe that Jesus uh, is present? Just point them to John 6, starting around verse 21-ish, 22-ish, and uh, you'll you'll have a bunch of evidence here, and we'll read a small section of it together tonight. So first time through, I invite you to get a picture for what's being said. So here's what's happened so far. uh, Jesus, very recently, right before this, he uh, was just uh, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, And then they got in a boat and he uh, appeared walking on water. And then when they come to Capernaum, the fishing town, which was his adult uh, hometown uh, during his ministry, that is where this happens, where he has this encounter. The disciples are coming to him and he's explaining this uh, Eucharistic teaching that he um, intends to ratify, you could say, in the Last Supper and presenting the Eucharist at the Last Supper. So... Um, that's where we're at. That's the scene in Capernaum after he's done these uh, different signs and wonders, getting towards the end of his public ministry, and he gives this discourse. So we'll read first time through John chapter 6, starting in verse 51. I am the living bread 
that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that you have an idea for what's being said here by Jesus in this teaching, uh, we're going to read it one more time, and I invite you this time to listen very closely to the words. Okay, now you have the setting. Try and empty your mind of any images. Pay close attention to the words. What words resonate with you? They don't have to have any theological relationship to the passage. They just speak to you for some reason. They connect to a memory, something going on in your own life, something that you're praying about, whatever it might be. Those ways are the ways that the Lord can speak to us through Scripture, one of the ways he can speak to us through Scripture. So pay attention to those details that just jump off the page for you and begin to ask, why this? What are you trying to say to me, Lord, through this detail? So second and final time through John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So take a few moments to look over the passage, reflect on the things that stood out to you, as well as anything that provoked a question. Uh, write those things down. You have about 10 minutes at your tables to discuss those things, what stood out, why, what questions you have. If you're watching this later, let us know what those things are. But for those of us here, take the next 10 minutes and we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and Q&A. So a lot here in this passage, a very uh, direct fundamental source for our teachings on the Eucharist. Um, something I wanted to explain a bit or give you context in before we, we get into questions is how this was received. And it's clear that this was difficult for the Jews listening, right? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
And then Jesus doubles down and he starts going into his blood. And the, I guess the, the nicer way to put it is the way that the Jews would have responded would have been like, gross, that's terrible. Like, that's like unheard of that you would offer us your blood. I mean, and we would probably respond the same way because, you know, blood's not something that, you know, like anybody hopefully enjoys, you know, like just love seeing that blood. Like, no. But in this culture at this time, Blood was something that was like forbidden to even come in contact with. And so if someone was bleeding, had an open wound, think of the hemorrhaging woman from the Gospels, you were forbidden from being around anyone because you were considered ritually unclean. Now, it didn't mean you were impure. It, didn't, it wasn't a qualifier of your, your moral like sinfulness or sinlessness. What it meant was that the Jewish people saw blood as the life source of the body. Okay? In the blood was the life, the life of the animal, the life of the person. And so if someone is losing life, there's something about that act of losing blood that is not in line with being in a place of worship where we're supposed to be gaining life. And so the thought was if you're in any kind of position where you are not ritually clean, that has anything to do with blood, stay away from places of worship from other people because you are in a biological um act of not being able to experience the abundance of life. It's just a natural part of losing that life. And this, this was very cyclical. Everyone probably had to go through this type of ritual impurity, especially women. Anytime that time of the month came around, they were ritually impure or unclean, not impure, unclean, meaning they just couldn't enter the synagogue or the temple. Anytime anyone had an open wound, etc. When you were to offer a sacrifice to God, you had to drain the animal entirely of its blood and pour it on the ground like water, okay? To show that all of the life there is being, uh, is being poured out and offered to God. You were not allowed to lay claim to that. You couldn't eat flesh with blood in it. It was forbidden uh, by the, the Torah. And any time you came into contact with blood, you had to make sure you went through some kind of ritual purification, okay? So, like I'll read you one example of this. This is in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10. As for anyone whether of the house of Israel or of the aliens residing among them. So this was for every human being who consumes any blood. I will set myself against that individual and will cut that person off from among the people since the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement on the altar for yourselves because it is the blood as life that makes atonement. So blood was meant to be offered just as our lives are meant to be offered for others to God. So blood was meant to be offered. So you could not consume it because what you were then saying is, I now have gained the power of the life of this animal or this individual. And that was something only God could command. Only God has power over creatures, over individuals. So you can see how Jesus saying this very directly would have been very problematic for them. It was completely against everything they had been told. So why would Jesus say this if he was not trying to institute something new, something intentional? Why would he say it at all? Well, because in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in the Eucharist, Jesus is now inviting us to have his life dwell within us. He's giving us that intimacy, that power, the beauty of him actually being within us and us, in a sense, being able to command the power and the presence of God within us. And we can do that. If you're confirmed, it's a teaching of the church that you have the power to call down the Holy Spirit. You have that power. You say, come Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit shows up. 
You have that power. The Lord gives us command over him. He humbles himself in that way. And he does that in several of the sacraments. And the Eucharist is another one coming in the form of humble bread. We're able to receive him. And in humble wine, we're able to receive him. And so in the blood is life. And so this would have been unheard of, which is why they question. Now, the words used here for eat in the first half of this, uh, up till verse like 50, 53, when he says, eats this bread, the word in Greek is phage. And phage means that you are just eating like you're eating food. Okay, it's, it's, and it's an it's a aorist tense, which means it's something that starts and then it stops. Uh, it's not something that's permanent. It's like you're eating a meal. And so they question Jesus. And so what he does is he doubles down. And so from that point forward, whenever he says the word eat, the word changes in Greek to trogain, which means to munch or to gnaw. It's the same word you would use of an animal chewing on a bone. Like he's literally saying like, no, like I'm not just telling you like, eat my flesh, like let's be in communion. I'm telling you like, like chew on me. Like that's literally what he's saying. Like he's being so literal. So he's using very animalistic, borderline offensive words to try and get his point across. Like he's saying, eat my flesh. Not eat my body, my flesh. Flesh is not a pleasant word. It's not, and it wasn't at this time. And an interesting thing about that phrase, if you were to tell someone, uh, I'm gonna eat their flesh, or they're going to eat my flesh, it was a, a turn of phrase used at the time to denote that you were going to commit a vicious attack against them. So if you tell someone, I'm going to eat your flesh, what you're really saying is, I'm going to viciously attack you. And so Jesus here is not only prefiguring the Eucharist, he's prefiguring the fact that he's going to allow people to viciously attack him. And he doesn't back down from this. He says, amen, amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever he says, amen, amen, that means like, I mean it, I mean it. Like, listen up. And it says, you probably know this if you've ever studied this passage, that it says in John uh, chapter 6, verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied. People couldn't handle this teaching. They couldn't handle it because it was so grotesque, so off the wall, so antithetical to the Torah that they left. And what did Jesus do? He say, oh, wait, no, I was just talking symbolically. Please come back, come back. It was, I was just joshing. No, he lets them leave because he meant what he said. He meant what he said. And so when he looks to the disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? This is the part where Peter says, to whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. So even though Peter is nuancing the sense that I don't necessarily understand what you just said, I'm going to trust because I've seen what you can do and I've seen that you are who you say you are. You've committed these signs, these wonders. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus here is also nuancing or refer referring to the Old Testament manna in the desert. When Exodus, in the Exodus, when Moses and the people were out in the desert, they were hungry, they were starving. God provided the manna from heaven and allowed them to survive for 40 years in the desert. The second they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, the manna dried up and they never had any more bread. That miraculous bread from heaven, even though his, their ancestors still ate it and died, they were sustained for a temporary time. The Eucharist is different will be sustained into eternal life. And so there's a lot of Old Testament references here, a lot of clear signs that Jesus is doing something intentional, something new, something sacramental and sacrificial. And if you understand that, it's clear, abundantly clear, that this is absolutely intended to show that Jesus wanted to institute the Eucharist. And then he does that at the Last Supper. 
That's why we have this reading for this upcoming Sunday, the Feast of the Body and Blood of Jesus. That's why that teaching of our church is so important, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. The source and summit of our faith. So with that being said, give you a little bit of context. Any questions about this passage or anything just stand out to you that you want to share? Yeah, John. Is there a relationship between the words and the Lord's prayers, Jerry Judge, this is there a relationship between the words in the Lord's Prayer and this? So the interesting thing about the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, this is how you are to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. The word for daily in Greek, if I'm not mistaken, is epiousios. And that word never existed in Greek before that was written. It was not a real word. The writers made it up to convey what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about bread. So people have translated it different ways. It is sometimes, there's two kind of pretty accurate translations depending on how you break, up, break down the word. It can either mean super abundant or super effective bread, which implies the Eucharist, or it can also uh, imply the bread for tomorrow. So there's something about the daily bread that will sustain us for tomorrow. Both of those, I think, point back to the Old Testament, to the manna in the desert. Because if you remember, when they were on the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to go collect the manna in the desert. So they would collect double only on the day before the Sabbath because it was a super abundance of bread that would provide and sustain them for tomorrow. And so when Jesus is giving the Lord's Prayer, he's giving almost a new spiritual equivalent to the manna in the desert, trusting that God is going to give us bread that's going to sustain us today and through tomorrow in our moments of need. So it is a reference, I think, in the super abundant kind of translation of the word to the Eucharist but it's not directly linked linguistically to any of the language here. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Yeah, Michael. Uh, what, is, me, what is the time frame from Moses and the Mona and the desert to Jesus and his son? Uh, roughly 1,230 years. Yeah, Moses is roughly, well, 1,200 to 1,300 BC, somewhere in there. Dating is disputed, but um, somewhere around there. You could push it all the way back to maybe 1,700 BC, but it's kind of... Archaeologists are pushing a little closer, and then 30 years, have 30 years for Jesus' public ministry. So, but at least 1,200 years. So in that 1,200 years, it's always been taught, like in the synagogues, of like, hey, once upon a time, Moses had this manna from, from heaven, mm -hmm. and then 1,200 years later, Jesus is like, no, here's this different kind of bread. This is like a salvation kind of bread. Mm -hmm. That's just yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of, uh, we've talked about this before here at Bible study, a lot of imagery to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist calls out Jesus, he says, he doesn't say, behold the Savior, behold the Son of Man. He says, behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the sacrificial Passover Lamb. And what way do you institute a new covenant, a new sacrament, than in the original covenant meal, the Passover meal? And so Jesus offers himself as the lamb. And you'll notice at the Last Supper, there's no mention of a lamb. It's just bread, even though it was absolutely required when you celebrated the Passover that you had a lamb, because Jesus is the sacrificial offering. So his blood on the cross that's poured out on the ground on the cross because it couldn't uh, be consumed in a traditional offering is offered on the cross, but then given to us to receive so that his life can be in us. Something that was never allowed before, never even thought of before, because that power was given to God alone. Now we share in that divine intimacy with God. It's one of the reasons for the incarnation, the fourth reason in the catechism for the incarnation, so that we could be partakers in the divine nature. 
In essence, God became like man so man could become like God. And this is one of the ways in which we can experience that. We receive his divine grace, his divine presence into us each day. I was reflecting on this today that I realized that the Eucharist is the opposite of demonic possession. That if someone is possessed by a demon, they are unwillingly invaded by an evil spirit. When we receive the Eucharist, we willingly invite the God of the universe to dwell in us. When you're possessed by an evil spirit, your free will is overcome. You have no choice once that demon is in there. When we have the Eucharist, our free will is not only honored, but our free will is perfected so that it can become like the Lord's will. And so how much grace and beauty exists? I mean, we think of the horrors and the sensationalistic ways that possession is kind of shown in movies and TV, and there's, there's some degree of truth to that and the reality of it. But take that to the other end of the spectrum. That's the beauty and the power that awaits you in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Like that, that incredible indwelling of God that all of us float right past every week. And some people don't even believe is actually happening. You know, or people will just receive and then put their hands back in their pockets and solder back to their pew just like they had a quick snack. You know, I mean, that's really, I sit in the front pew and I see it. I see the way people receive and just like, oh, well, okay. Just kind of saunter back to the pew like nothing's different. We, we need to recognize the gravity of what we're receiving because it's a who that we are receiving. And that changes us. Just like when a husband and a wife receive each other on their wedding day, that changes them. It's the same thing. We are no longer the same when we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. Chris. It's a nice segue to my question because I know that this uh, verses right here that really separates a big core of like Christianity versus like Catholicism. Because mm -hmm. I know with, Christian, with Christians, they don't believe that this is actual bread and wine. Yes, well, okay, so I'll make a differentiation. Protestant Christians, because we're all Christians, right? So non-Catholic Christians, also known as Protestants, for the most part, do not believe in the real presence. However, there are some Lutherans and like Episcopalians and other uh, very close to Catholicism denominations, Anglicans, some Anglicans, um, that believe in uh, consubstantiation. We believe as Catholics in transubstantiation. There's a word that was kind of coined by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And what it means is that uh, it's the, the word for the change that happens in the bread and the wine. So what happens to the bread and the wine, what's called the accidents of the bread and the wine, the things that we see with our senses, they, it looks the same, smells the same, tastes the same, feels the same, sounds the same. But the substance is completely changed from bread or wine to the body and blood of Jesus. Consubstantiation is a slight difference. And it's basically saying that Jesus is living in there somewhere, but it's still substantially bred at the same time. They're kind of coexisting in there. And you may think that's a very nuanced difference. It kind of is. Um, but the transubstantiation, it communicates that Jesus wants to give us the fullness of himself. Like he has the power to completely embody what he's invited to embody and to completely give himself to us. He's not just kind of nestled in there in the little corner. You know, it's completely him. And so... There is that kind of nuanced similarity between some Protestant denominations. Um, Orthodox Christians believe in transubstantiation, most of them. Um, some of them might articulate it differently, but they, they have seven valid sacraments uh, in the Orthodox tradition, uh, at least in most of them, um, if they're still kind of in union with 
with each, it's very complicated. But anyway, so yeah, so, but for the most part, like let's say non-denominational Christians, the average Protestant Christian you'll encounter in the United States, because we are primarily founded on Protestant Christian principles in this country, um, does not believe in the real presence. Yeah, they might have some experience of communion. It's highly symbolic. It's maybe a sharing of a loaf of bread and grape juice, and they'll read this reading, and it'll be kind of like a Thanksgiving meal where we're all parts of one body, the body of Christ. But that's probably the extent of it. And it, it doesn't happen every week. It maybe is quarterly, maybe monthly. That'd be pretty common. But, you know, quarterly or maybe once or twice a year. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, do you have uh, verse 54, Revelation on the last day? What is considered the last day and why wouldn't they be risen after? So where it says, I will raise him on the last day, what is considered the last day? And why wouldn't they be raised after their death? So at this point, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet. So nobody can rise yet. So what he's promising here is twofold. The last day means both the last day of your life, individually, our lives, and also the final last day of all human existence as we know it on this planet. Whichever happens for us first, that is when Jesus will raise us if we are encountering him through the sacraments, if we've been baptized, we've received that salvation. And then, interesting thing in the catechism, it says, so the only sacrament necessary for salvation, fundamentally, is baptism. However, in the catechism, it says, for believers, the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't receive the Eucharist or you can't, you won't be saved. What it means is, if you want to be saved, you're going to need the Eucharist. You're going to need this food for the journey. It's not the same kind of necessary as baptism is. Baptism is like, if you don't have it, you know, not all bets are off, but you're getting kind of risky here. You know, there's other ways God might be able to intervene, but like that's the normative way he chose is to be baptized. Um, but the Eucharist for believers is something that sustains us and ushers us toward eternal life. And so it is absolutely necessary for us to be receiving the Eucharist. That's why it's a precept of the church that we, every single one of us, attends Mass every Sunday and every Holy Day of Obligation, and that we receive the Eucharist in a state of grace at least once a year, in, preferably in the Easter season. That's the bare minimum for Catholics. And you have to keep in mind that's Catholics in the whole world. Not everyone has access to the Eucharist every week like we do. Um, but they still gather for, for, um, for Mass just without the Eucharist. So, or I guess it would be a communion service. But um, that's the bare minimum. That's the bare minimum. That's not a lot. It's because we need it. We absolutely need it. Chris, yeah? So, say like an example though, like if someone can't, like they have like a, what's called an NG tube. Mm -hmm. uh, is that like where the anointment of the sick comes in? Yeah, so um, like I said, you don't have to receive the Eucharist. Like it's not required for you to be saved. Um, there are a couple different things you can do. They can just receive the precious blood if they can receive liquids, because we believe that the fullness of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus exists in both the bread alone, the body alone, and in the blood alone. So when you receive the cup, you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. When you receive the bread, the body, you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So it's complete in both what's called species of the Eucharist. Um, so someone could just receive the wine. They could also receive a host dissolved in water and drink it. Um, and if you ever need to know a way to properly dispose of a host that's been found, that's been fallen on the floor, that you're not sure if it's been consecrated, that's what you're supposed to do. You dissolve it 
in a, a cup of water and you consume it, or you pour it in a sacrarium, which is a holy sink that empties into holy ground, or you can pour it directly into holy ground, um, consecrated ground. So like church property or something like that. But um, that's, that's how you could also bring that to the church and be like, Hey, can you guys do this? Cause we have to do that kind of stuff all the time. Well, not with the Eucharist, but like disposing of things in holy ground. That sounds really ominous. So not bodies, not people. I mean, we bury people in holy ground, but like not like secretly. So anyway, this whole back inner, like, you know, the dark web of the Catholic Church, all the things we do, burying holy objects. Anyways, does that answer your question? Okay, thanks, Chris. Other thoughts, questions, things that stood out to you, things you're curious about from this reading? John. So, I can't find this thing, but like, how do you optimize the grace you receive every time you receive? Like, you, there has to be some work we do. Like, if Father mm -hmm. Peter receives and I receive, like, God's working, I would, I would imagine he's holier than I. Yeah. So, so, what is the best predisposition every Sunday you would, you would recommend? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, an analogy that I heard recently that I think is helpful is, um, let's say you are, you know, you're filthy, dirty, and you want to get clean. Um, so when you're entering in the sacraments, it's a way for us to kind of be cleansed in some way, reconciled with God, encounter God in some way. Um, when you receive the sacrament, the sacrament is, oh, if it's done in the proper matter and form, it's always effective, always valid. It's a word in the church in Latin, ex opere operato, by the work worked. If it's done properly, it's effective. Even if the priest is in a state of serious sin, even if the individual receiving it is in a state of serious sin, it doesn't mean that the sacrament is not present and valid. Okay? Um, however, if you're, let's say you're in that kind of, you know, not perfected state, a state that's not optimal to receive the fullness of grace, that would be like being really dirty and trying to go get clean, but you have like a bunch of layers and a raincoat on. Like only parts of you are going to really receive the benefit of being washed. And so it's really for personal reflection of what are those layers? What's preventing me from optimally receiving the Eucharist? So the first thing is going to be sin. So making sure we're in a state of grace, making sure we've gone to confession if we have any mortal sin on our soul. Um, venial sin, your venial sins are forgiven like five times at mass without you even knowing it before you receive um, but I think another thing is awareness. Like, so like let, for the venial sin thing, for instance, like when you bless yourself with holy water, and make the sign of the cross, when you hear the gospel pre proclaimed, when you say the confidior, um, you know, um, through my fault, my fault, through my most grievous fault, when you actually receive the Eucharist, all of those things forgive all of your venial sins, your little sins, but we're not aware of it. And so calling to an awareness, this is part of what the church asks of us at Mass, full, conscious, and active participation. That's in the language of, of the church about the Mass. And so if we're not fully participating, actively participating, consciously participating, then those are kind of these barriers to grace. It doesn't mean the grace isn't there and that we're not experiencing it to some degree, but the depth to which it resonates and, and changes us and lives in us depends on whether or not we've got these um, obstacles. So making sure you're in a state of grace, making sure you're properly disposed and prepared, and that you are able to fully, actively, and consciously participate. So fully means like I'm 100% here. 
Okay, I'm not, you know, what's Jim Gaffigan's line when he's at Mass? Like, he gets distracted and he says, did I go to Wendy's twice yesterday? Like, that's how his thoughts wander off during the Mass. You know, but like, really trying to do something to focus your mind and heart on what is happening. Um, and the image that I like to think of, so this might be helpful for you too in this question, is anytime I'm at Mass, I act as though it's my wedding day. Like, I bring myself back to my wedding day physically. Like, I, I pretend I'm in my tuxedo. I remember what it was like getting ready with all of my groomsmen in the sacristy. And I imagine myself when, I coming, when I'm coming into Mass and getting in the pew is me walking out to stand in front of the altar to receive Erica. And I see her coming down the aisle. I imagine that whole scene when I'm walking down the aisle to receive Jesus. It calls to mind the most loving, intimate, personal type of encounter that I can fathom and that I've ever experienced, which is a sliver of what we're actually experiencing in the Eucharist. So having some kind of image, some kind of idea or analogy to focus your mind on the reality of what is happening so that you are aware. And then part of actively and consciously participating in the Mass is being aware of what's happening at Mass. Learning about the liturgy and very specifically, the Church asks every single one of us to prepare the readings in advance. To have read all of the readings for that upcoming Sunday liturgy in advance. Not just the gospel here at Bible study, but the first reading, the responsorial psalm, the second reading, the gospel. It's four readings. And so you have six days. You know, you could read two of them twice. You could read through all of them once, then pick a day for each one and then read through all of them again and just have a daily plan. But that's something we're all asked to do. So when we come to Mass, it's not the first time we're experiencing the liturgy as it is that Sunday. We've pondered the readings. We've pondered the way in which Jesus is inviting us into worship and relationship that week. And we're doing all we can to call to mind the gravity of what's actually happening. Um, but fundamentally, like in terms of any kind of theology, it would be more ordered to what's the proper matter and form of the sacrament. So you need to be properly disposed. So that just has to do with going to confession, making sure you're in a state of grace, and um, making sure you're actively participating. Yeah. Yes. Just kind of to follow up on this question, um, like you, and you were stating earlier, how you said people receive the communion and they just kind of mm-hmm. saunter back to that pew. What what would you say about the way we're supposed to experience it after we've taken taken the communion? Um, or just yeah. in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you may now kiss the bride, like. <laughs> That's what's coming to mind. It's like that. I'm thinking of my wedding. I'm thinking of that moment, like that embrace, like that intimacy. It's just like he's there, you know. So when you go back to the pew, like you're carrying the beauty of your relationship with the Lord with you. Like there's something different about you now, like fundamentally in terms of the sacramental grace operating in you than there was before you received it. And so whether you imagine that as like I'm carrying a gift or my hands are now full or I'm in that embrace, bringing that back to your pew and sitting in just prayer of silent thanksgiving to just be in that moment, you know, imagining like I'm imagining then on my wedding day, like that first moment after all the hustle and the bustle of the wedding and then like all the pictures and then everyone goes and we finally get to get like recognized like we're married. You know, like we're married. One of my favorite things to do, I encourage you to do this, but if you're ever at a wedding with me, don't beat me to it because it's my favorite thing to do, is when two people get married and they leave the church, I like to go run up to them. I'm very aggressive and obnoxious. I get in the way of everything. And I run up to them and I, I go to the groom and I say, hey, congratulations, who is that? And I point to his bride. And sometimes he's just like, like that's, that's Jessica. Like you've met her a thousand times. I'm like, no, who is that? 
for him to kind of get a chance to be, oh, that's my wife. And then I go to her and I say, who's that? That's my husband. She catches on always way quicker than he does. <laughs> always. She's just like, dude, you've met her. Like, come on. I can't believe we invited you. Uh, you know, because it calls to mind, like, this is different now. You know, this is different now. So I'm imagining that moment, you know, where like everything settled down on my wedding day. My wife and I just got to like hold hands and be like, oh my gosh, like we're married. Like, this is crazy. Like, that's kind of that going back to your pew moment. Like, I can't believe like that I get to receive the Lord of the universe who created supernovas, giraffes and purple, like into my actual like self. And he's like here in my mess, like, you know, and it's crazy, you know, I can't, I don't have any other like image to like think of this, you know, like just imagine like the most like your biggest historical or currently alive celebrity idol or like you know public figure that you're like if i met them i would like i would die so for me <laughs> this is really embarrassing it's amy joe johnson who was the original pink ranger in mighty morphin power rangers okay <laughs> she was my like first crush and like you, many of you know i like emma watson i think i might be able to handle it if i ever met emma watson if i met amy joe johnson i would i would cry and i would fall to the ground i know it and so she's nowhere near Jesus, but I'm imagining if I like one day I'm at home and I'm just cooking dinner and the doorbell rings and my house has got kids running around, it's a mess or whatever, and Amy Jo Johnson is there. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, let me clean, please come in, I'm dead, I'm crying, like, you know, what's happening? You know, I'd have this like urge to do this and then her just being, no, I'm like so excited to meet you, I can't wait to be here, I just want to like meet you and your family and be friends with you. And I would just be like, oh my gosh, like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. Like that's what's happening when we receive Jesus, but like times a thousand, you know, like he's coming into this mess of our human experience, our human existence, our messy home of our soul, and he wants to be there. And he wants to sit there and live there with us. And that's just nuts. And so whatever the image is for you, that whatever the celebrity, the experience, the moment, like multiply that by a thousand. Call it to mind in the moment of receiving the Eucharist. Like even if you're not married, we all know like good marriages. And we all kind of have images of that. So I find it a very helpful image. But if not, find the one that works for you. And call that to mind so that the beauty of what's happening in the Eucharist can really just strike you each time. Imagine yourself walking down that aisle or being the one who is being received, you know, whatever image you have of that. You know, if you've experienced a profound moment of intimacy, being seen, of reconciliation or forgiveness, like call that to mind while Jesus is touching your lips and allow that to just fill you up, the feelings you know, like returning to that moment, like it's your, your spiritual happy place. Like it's, it's paving the way. It's the doormat into that experience of Jesus being with you. Not a doormat. It's a pathway. It's a pathway. Well, I meant like the welcome mat, you know, like the, what do you call it? The doormat. Yeah. Jesus is not a doormat. I mean, he's, it's like the, come on in, you know. Anyway. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Yes, sir. The animal Christi is a really good prayer. It reflects on the a lot of different aspects of the Yes. Day. Yeah. So if you know that prayer, it was written, I think, by St. Ignatius of Loyola. Yeah. yeah. Uh, soul of Christ, sanctify me. Sometimes they, some, certain priests, if I've, I've been to daily mass at St. Ed's and some uh, one of the priests there typically will say it while he's uh, cleaning the chalice. I don't know if he's there anymore, but I um, can't remember who it was. But, uh, Father Armando. Yes. Yeah. He's not okay. Yeah. Well, it's usually on the back of a missile, if you have a missile, or you can look it up on your phone. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, so it's called the Anima Christi, or Soul of Christ, is, is the prayer. It's a that's a very uh, a prayer that is used popularly as a devotion to be prayed right after you receive communion. Other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you?
John? Just um, when you talked about the, the lamb at Passover mm -hmm. and, and never being mentioned, Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, well, obviously he's the uh, priest too, mm -hmm. uh, but that Scott Hahn um, has the, the fourth cup. Yes. Where like the Passover actually ends right when he receives the vinegar. Mm -hmm. that, that's the fourth cup. Yes, and, yeah. And it's, I would highly recommend um, that book. Yeah. Yeah, it's called the Fourth Cup. It's also a recorded talk by Dr. Scott Hahn on Lighthouse Media. Um, he also has a book called The Lamb's Supper. And then um, one of our men's ministries is actually starting right now, um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Petrie, Grant Petrie, I think wrote that book. Um, that those are all really great books to help understand these Old Testament typologies of the Eucharist, and that this is something that was intended intentional that Jesus is doing, not just by accident, but he, he wanted to have for us. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't just like, oh, what's a nice way to remember Jesus? Let's just do the Last Supper over and over again. That was the last time we were all like together. No, he like told us, do this in memory of me. This is an intentional thing. And he disrupted the normal format of the Passover to institute new words. And he didn't finish the final cup of the typical Passover meal, as John said, until he drank wine on the cross. And said, I will not drink of it anew uh, until I drink of it anew in the kingdom. And then he drinks of it on the cross and he passes into the kingdom. He says, it is finished. What's finished? His life? Well, no. Also that sacrificial offering to institute the Eucharist. So when you see, you start to see these threads, read Exodus and then read the Last Supper. Like read Exodus and Matthew back to back, especially the first like, I don't know, 30 chapters of Exodus actually not even that many, the first 17 chapters of Exodus and then the Gospel of Matthew, like you'll start to see these parallels back and forth. It's incredible. Other things? Michael. One of the um, parallels that I was awakened to over Christmas season was that um, the first like secular thing that Jesus does on the planet is he's laid in a manger and mm -hmm. you put that together that the manger is where you put the food for the animals. Yeah. And he was in the manger. There you were, here we are thirty-three years later, and he's saying, Hey, I am the bread of life. Yeah. And you're like, wow, that is just simply amazing. And then you go back to twelve hundred years from the mana in the desert. Yep. And those first few generations after Moses are like, Well, oh, there's this mana and, and this History of bread is being taste for twelve hundred years. Mm -hmm. And you think it's just bread. It's like, no, there's a big significance behind it. And here comes Jesus and the bread takes on a whole different dimension. That's just Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and it's even present in the very uh, isn't it am I getting the story wrong? I don't want to misquote something. No, I'm thinking of, oh, that's another good one. Um, so Cain, Cain and Abel. Abel is a, a shepherd, you know, offering a lamb. And Cain is a tiller of the ground who harvests grain. And he doesn't bring forth the best grain, the best, you could say, Eucharistic offering. And Abel does, and so Cain kills Abel. So even from the very first, like, moment of tension post-original sin in the Bible, we have this idea of bread being offered and whether or not it is worthy and that there should be this idea of a worthy offering of bread and it's accompanied by an offering of a, a lamb or a farm animal. You know, So it's, it's very intentional from the very beginning. And then Melchizedek, I think in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham brings offerings of bread and wine to this mysterious priest who comes out of nowhere um, named Melchizedek and gives him a tenth of everything. 
always offering the sacrifice um, as a, a thanksgiving for victory in a battle that they had just won. And so this is present even in small ways. You know, Elijah, or maybe it's Elisha. Elisha has the uh, multiplication of barley loaves. You know, the prophet Elisha, and that echoes Jesus' multiplication of loaves. And so all of this is pointing over and over again in the Old Testament. There is miraculous things happening with bread. Why? Why is that? All of these images of like the song of the vineyard, I think in Ezekiel, and all of, you know, all throughout the Psalms. And such simple ingredients, right? This is what I love about bread and wine, is because if you think about them, they're kind of made the same way. You, know, you don't just take one grape and one piece of grain, you take a lot of it, just like God takes all of us, and you crush it or strip it of its skin. You take away all of the outer husk, just like God is desiring to strip us of our worldly trappings and worldly attachments, and you crush the grain, you crush the grapes. And out of that crushing, through a process of baking or fermentation, trying it under heat or time, something new is created that can bless others. The Eucharist is really a model for you and me, like how we're being invited into the Christian life. It's not just one of us, it's all of us. And together, we are stripped of the things of this world, of our false idols, of our desire to please ourselves, And we think more about the community and we take our sufferings, the ways we're crushed, the ways that these things pain us to be taken away. And we recognize this isn't God punishing us. This is a process that God is allowing us to go through for our own purification so that we will become something new, so that God can dwell in us and we can bless others. Just like simple bread and simple wine, things that everyone on the planet would be, have accessible to them, God is able to enter and dwell in and bless that's what God is inviting you and I into every time we receive the Eucharist. Because, brothers and sisters, every time you receive the Eucharist, you receive Jesus, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. But who is the body of Christ? We are. So mystically, every time you receive the Eucharist, we are receiving one another in community. We are present there mystically in the body of Christ. As many parts are part of one body who is Christ, we receive one another in community. We cannot isolate from one another, divide from one another. When we draw together into community, that is where we find Christ. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study, the gift of the Eucharist especially. We pray, Lord, for um, any ways that we don't understand the gravity of this, any ways we might be tempted to still think that the Eucharist is a symbol, to know definitively tonight that your body, blood, soul, and divinity dwell in your most precious body and most precious blood in the Eucharist at every Mass in our Adoration Chapel, ready for us to receive, ready for us to adore, ready for us to encounter you. It is not a symbol. In the words of Flannery O'Connor, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. But it's not, it's you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known to us more richly, more deeply, more intentionally in the breaking of the bread. Help us to strip ourselves of the obstacles, things that prevent us from noticing you, having intimacy with you, being in relationship with you when we receive you. And we pray, Lord, that the source and summit of our faith, the Eucharist, would drive us into deeper community with one another and deeper intimacy with you. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.